The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. Okay, uh, Christ then uh, comes as Lord to fulfill the covenant. Uh, he comes uh, uh, to uh, show by his mighty works who he is, and he comes to show by his words who he is. Uh, because uh, uh, Jesus speaks the words that have been given to him by the Father. You know, John's Gospel especially emphasizes this, that Jesus does the works that he has seen the Father do. And Jesus speaks the words that he's heard from the Father, so that the works he does, he says, are not of himself, they're the Father's works. And uh, the words that he speaks, he speaks not of himself. <laughs> and that uh, uh, even if he bears witness of himself, his witness in it is true, uh, not uh, as a single witness, which isn't true, but because the Father has borne witness to him. So. Uh, he is uh, witnessing to what the Father has done. So he's a true witness of the Father. But uh, Jesus Christ then speaks the very word of God and is uh, fulfilling the word of God in that which he does. But above all, in all of this, Jesus is revealing himself, always himself. Um, somehow it does seem that this can manage to escape us. I, I don't know how it can escape us, but... Um, uh, look at any one of the Gospels and uh, uh, just take Jesus' person out of it. Now, of course, that's exactly what the old liberals tried to do when they tried to take the Sermon on the Mount and make that ethical instruction uh, quite apart from Jesus. Uh, but it doesn't work. It, it doesn't wash. Uh, uh, Schweitzer showed that, that, that you can't take that out and uh, have any New Testament left. <laughs> that is, you can't take Jesus out. You can't take the eschatology out. You can't take uh, the future uh, out uh, of the teaching of Jesus. Uh, Jesus does not come just to tell people to do good and be good. Uh, Jesus comes to announce God's saving work of the kingdom. And how has the kingdom come? Because he's come. And, uh, if I, by the finger of God, cast out demons, then is the kingdom of God among you. Uh, Jesus comes bringing the kingdom. Uh, you know, uh, people get confused about the kingdom sometime, sometimes. Uh, I remember when I was a student here, I went to uh, Ned Stonehouse one time and said, uh, uh, help me out on this uh, about the kingdom. I get a little confused about present and future kingdom and all that. And... Uh, uh, Ned Stonehouse said, uh, very simple, <laughs> he says, just keep your eye on Jesus. <laughs> if you see the king, you understand the kingdom. Uh, Jesus came once, and the kingdom came. Jesus is coming again, the kingdom will come. So you understand the kingdom by uh, focusing on the king, uh, which uh, was uh, excellent advice, of course, and Dr. Stonehouse gave lots of excellent advice, but uh, that's a good sample. Uh, so here it is. Jesus comes. He is the Lord, and everything focuses on him. 
He is the bread of life. He re, uh, John 6, he, he rebukes the crowds because uh, they don't see how he got around, across the lake. He fed the 5,000 the other side of the lake on the east side of the lake. Uh, and then uh, uh, they follow around in boats the next morning. Boats come in the meantime, come across. But they know there was no boat there but that uh, boat that Jesus' disciples had come in. And uh, the disciples uh, had gone across the lake that night. They knew that. And Jesus wasn't with them. They also knew that. So they got on the other side, and, ha- and there's Jesus. How did he get there? <laughs> and they ask him about that. And, of course, he ignores that question. He can't explain that to them, <laughs> given their state of mind. <laughs> that I just walked across. What do you expect? You know. <laughs> but but, uh, but uh, then... Uh, they, they want more miracles, more, more showy miracles. Uh, I mentioned this yesterday, like, like bread from heaven, you know, manna coming down. That's the kind of thing they want to see. Uh, but, but Jesus says, uh, uh, you, you ate the bread and you were satisfied, but you, uh, you didn't see the sign. You don't understand the meaning of the sign. And when they ask for another sign, they, they show that again. Because all they want is a wonder. All they want is something so amazing that it's manifestly supernatural, but they have no interest in what it might mean. And Jesus says, uh, I am the bread of life. This is what the feeding of the 5,000 means. Not that I gave you bread so that they could take up 12 basketfuls. Uh, Not that I just did a wonder, Uh, but that I'm showing you who I am, that I'm the bread of life. That's the meaning of the sign. Uh, And it wasn't Moses that gave you the bread, it was my father. And the bread that my father gives you ultimately is not the manna, uh, but uh, the sign. I am the bread of life and and you must uh, uh, eat my flesh and drink my blood if you're going to have life in you. So it's that way all the way through. He's accused in John 5 of making himself equal with God. And that's true. He forgives sins. He is equal with God. So he reveals himself as the son of the father. And he comes also as the servant of the covenant, as well as the Lord of the covenant. As the servant of the covenant, he's the seed of the woman. He's the uh, archegos, the the, uh, founder of uh, the new humanity, uh, not only, but uh, the founder of the... Uh, the, the new ethnicity, uh, the church of Jesus Christ is the spiritual ethnics. Uh, they are the new Israel. They are those who are established uh, through Jesus Christ. Uh, he is the prophet. Uh, uh, Jonah was ready to die for the people. Uh, but Jesus Christ comes as the one who dies. Uh, you got that? Some of you look puzzled about Jonah dying for the people. Uh, let me quick explain that. Uh, why did he take a boat for Nineveh? Uh, I mean, for uh, uh, Tarshish, for the Spain. Uh, why did he take ship at Joppa to go to Tarshish? Um, well, he didn't want to go to Nineveh. God told him to go there. Why didn't he want to go to Nineveh? Uh, well, um, he had prophesied the great prosperity for Israel, see? And uh, he was very happy about that. And the prosperity had come uh, under Jeroboam II. And uh, uh, he was delighted about that. Uh, But, you see, uh, the great enemy nation that was the threat to Israel, 
uh, was the uh, Assyrian nation and uh, Nineveh was uh, the capital. That's where, that was the, where the empire was located. So this is the power of Nineveh that's the great threat to Israel. And Israel had already been subjugated by armies from uh, Nineveh uh, in uh, the British Museum and the Black Obelisk uh, of Shalmaneser III. There's uh, uh, one of the, I guess, the only representation of a Hebrew king. Uh, but there's Jehu down on his uh, uh, knees, banging his uh, forehead to the ground, uh, paying tribute to Shalmaneser III. <laughs> And uh, then around the stele, you know, are all the gifts and tribute that he brings to, Sh to Shalmaneser. Uh, so uh, Israel had already been subjugated by armies from Nineveh. And uh, Jonah had the message in 40 days Nineveh would be destroyed. So all he had to do was get out of the picture for 40 days and there goes Nineveh. And the threat to Israel is removed, right? That's why even afterwards, even after uh, he, he does ultimately go to Nineveh, he still sits around uh, watching for the 40 days <laughs> in case their repentance wouldn't uh, measure up to Puritan standards and, and God might blast them anyway. So uh, he's, uh, he's kind of watching and waiting uh, because the destruction of Nineveh is Israel's hope in his view, see. And that's the only thing that accounts for his behavior. Uh, he gets in the ship, and once he's in the ship, he's all relaxed. He goes to sleep. Even the storm doesn't wake him up because uh, he knows it's taken care of, you see. Uh, Nineveh doesn't get a prophet. They, they don't repent, and they do get destroyed. And when the sailors wake him up and tell him to pray to his God and all that, he tells them, frankly, that uh, he's the one at fault. And he's quite happy to tell him, throw me overboard and you'll save your lives. Because if he gets thrown overboard, that's even better than taking a ship to Tarshish. Uh, uh, because it makes the fate of Nineveh more certain. And, uh, and then, uh, 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 of course, God doesn't let him get away with it. And uh, inside the fish, you have that tremendous psalm with the uh, golden text of the whole Bible right at the end of it. Uh, salvation is of the Lord. <laughs> Salvation is of the Lord. The, um, well, anyway, uh, Jonah, you see, is uh, willing to die for the people. Throw me overboard. <laughs> and then uh, Nineveh gets destroyed. Uh, but uh, a greater than Jonah comes with Jesus Christ. And uh, he's three days uh, not inside the great fish, but he's three days in the grave. Uh, but God raises him up and uh, makes him to be uh, the great deliverer, not only of uh, his people, but also of the Gentiles. Uh, Jesus is the great prophet, uh, like um, Moses, of course, Deuteronomy 18. He's the great priest uh, after the order of Melchizedek. You know how Hebrews... Uh, in the second and fifth chapter, deal with that, referring back to Psalm 110. And he's the king forever in the line of David. So by his sufferings and his glory, Jesus accomplishes all these things for us. Uh, he comes as the God-man uh, to be uh, our redeemer. First <clears throat> uh, Peter uh, 3.15 
that first Peter quotes from Isaiah 8 and uh, in Isaiah 8 we're told not to fear their fear not to be troubled not to be disturbed but uh, rather uh, to sanctify the name of God the uh, the the, the uh, I'll, I'll read just a couple of verses there <clears throat> verse 11 Isaiah 8 for the Lord spake thus to me with a strong hand and instructed me not to walk in the way of the people saying say ye not a conspiracy concerning all whereof this people shall say a conspiracy neither fear ye their fear nor be in dread the Lord of hosts let him shall you sanctify and let him be your fear and let him be your dread they don't fear what they fear but fear the Lord of hosts let him be your fear let him be your dread and then that amazing statement uh, him shall you sanctify well not amazing in that context exactly of course you sanctify the name of God uh, but uh, what does it mean to sanctify God well you know what it means when God sanctifies you it means uh, he, he removes sin and, and makes you holy right but uh, how do you sanctify God? You can't make him holy. He's already holy, perfectly holy. So how do you sanctify the Holy One? Well, the only way you do that, obviously, is by uh, acknowledging his holiness and uh, adoring his holiness and being in awe of his holiness. And so uh, uh, your, your attitude to God is uh, to confess him to be the Holy One. And when you confess him to be the Holy One, you're obviously confessing him to be God. That's what it means. <laughs> Hallowed be thy name. That means, uh, Lord, uh, not just that your name be hallowed among men, but it means, Lord, uh, hallow your own name. That is to say, be who you are. Uh, be the Holy One. Uh, be hallowed. Be uh, uh, separated and adored as the Holy One. And so uh, Peter takes that, First uh, Peter 3, uh, verse 14, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, blessed are you, and fear not their fear, neither be troubled. Now, there he's quoting Isaiah 8 exactly uh, from the Greek uh, Old Testament version, the Septuagint. Fear not their fear, uh, neither be troubled. And then he says, <clears throat> but sanctify in your hearts Christ as Lord. And uh, in the Greek version of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, it says, sanctify uh, the, the Lord himself sanctify in your hearts the Lord himself Altan in Greek and Peter says sanctify in your hearts the Lord and then instead of writing Altan the Lord himself he writes the Lord Pan Christan the Christ now there's no more remarkable attribution of deity to Christ in the New Testament than that one in Peter, right? They sanctify in your hearts, that is, recognize as the Holy One. And then where the Old Testament says the Lord himself, Peter says the Lord the Christ. So he comes, he's acknowledged as the Lord by his own disciples, Simon Peter, who was in the fishing boat with Jesus, you know. And, uh, but when he saw the, the miracle of the gathering of all the fish and filling up of all the nets, remember what he said. He fell down in his knees in a boat full of fish. And uh, 
uh, he made a pretty impractical suggestion, uh, depart from me, O oh Lord. <laughs> but uh, you see the point of it, don't you? He realized who it was that was in that boat with him. It was none other than the Lord. And uh, that's his conviction. That's what he teaches in his uh, epistle. Uh, the one who knew Jesus as a man confesses him to be none other than the holy God. So he is the God-man who comes as the servant, who has a name above every name, and uh, who fulfills the prophecy of Isaiah 9, 6. Uh, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders. His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Uh, the king is the son of God. He's as the angel of the Lord among us. And uh, uh, those prophecies in the Old Testament that draw together the, uh, the coming of God and the coming of the Son of God uh, have uh, their fulfillment in uh, Jesus Christ. Uh, Malachi uh, 3, Behold, I send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who will come? The Lord will come. And the messenger of the covenant whom you desire, behold, he comes. Now you see, the coming of the Lord and the coming of the angel of the covenant, uh, messenger, angel, <laughs> same term. Uh, the coming of the angel of the covenant, the coming of the messenger of the covenant is the same as the coming of the Lord. But who can abide the day of his coming? Uh, and who shall stand when he appears? And he will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver and so on. Uh, so the one who comes is the Lord. Uh, the one who comes is the angel of the Lord. Uh, the one who comes is also the servant of the Lord. Uh, the coming of uh, the Lord and the coming of the servant are one in the coming of the God-man. Um, <clears throat> now, um, let's draw some of this together, and we'll do it further when we um, deal with the... Uh, passages that I assigned because as we look at them we'll see how these things get applied but uh, I want to summarize now by uh, looking with you at the Christological principles in redemptive history and uh, first of all covenant history leads to Christ as its goal I, I won't belabor that point I've said it many times now uh, but uh, the point is the whole structure of the covenant can only be fulfilled by that ultimate renewal that the Old Testament promises. And the ultimate renewal is the eschatological renewal, the, the renewal in which God must come to be their God, present with them in a way that goes beyond the, the appearance of the cloud. And of course, the other side is the servant must come uh, the, the one in whom God will be glorified. His name is Israel, in whom he will be glorified. So God must come and the servant must come, and in that way the covenant gets renewed. So the coven, covenant history leads us to Jesus Christ. And uh, uh, Peter, again, Peter, first chapter. <laughs> who is, uh, what is... He not only tells us that the whole Old Testament tells us about Christ, he also tells us that the whole Old Testament is given to us by the Spirit of Christ. It's the Spirit of Christ that's testifying in the Old Testament. So, uh, he's, verse 10, 
concern, uh, he, uh, excuse me, 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10. Concerning which salvation the prophets sought and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, uh, searching uh, who or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ, which was in them, did point unto, when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that should fall. See, uh, it was the Spirit of Christ in the prophets that brought this uh, uh, testimony. So it comes from them. Uh, now, you might be puzzled by my translation there, uh, who testified who or when, <laughs> who or what manner of time. Uh, but uh, that's brought out very well in um, Wayne Grudem's uh, commentary on First Peter, where he, he shows that that's the way it ought to be translated. <laughs> Uh, the, the prophets were searching who was going to come and when he was going to come. And uh, they, the, the, they were able to search that because of the Spirit of Christ uh, that was in them, uh, uh, inspiring them. So covenant uh, history leads to Christ as its goal. Covenant history anticipates Christ in its symbolism. And... Uh, uh, let, let's just uh, think for a moment about how that's true. Uh, covenant history uh, anticipates Christ in its symbolism. Uh, now, you, you have different kinds of symbolism in the Old Testament. You have symbolic events. Uh, the Exodus is a symbolic event. That is to say, it's not only a deliverance of Israel, it's a sign of God's salvation. It teaches us more than that God can rescue a slave, an enslaved people. It teaches us about how God saves and about what the salvation of God ultimately means. Because, you see, he didn't just <clears throat> deliver them. He brought them to himself at Mount Sinai. So there's teaching in that event. You see that there's teaching by the way in which the image of the Exodus is picked up and used later as a, a, a model for the ultimate salvation. Isaiah 40, uh, prepare you in the desert a highway for our God. God's going to come marching through the desert as he did the first time. You see, it's an allusion to the Exodus event uh, to show the way in which there will be a second Exodus. And the reason for describing a second Exodus is simply to indicate uh, that the first exodus pointed beyond itself to something more. Uh, so you, a good, um, uh, a good uh, exposition of this is found in Fairbairn's uh, typology. It's an old work, but his chapter on historical symbolism is very good. Uh, he points out how the historical events of the Old Testament are uh, uh, presented in a way that shows their symbolic force. <clears throat> the, uh, so uh, there are those uh, symbolic events, and then there is prophetic symbolism. And of course, there I'm just thinking about the very obvious symbols that prophets often use, uh, the uh, sense in which... Uh, uh, the uh, oh, Ezekiel uh, makes a clay tablet like the walls of Jerusalem, you know, and shows how the walls will be broken. And of course, even the uh, the non uh, uh, the the, pro the false prophets uh, they did the same thing 
like the wearing horns to show the power of Israel against the power of God against the enemy when they were falsely prophesying that the exile would not take place. So there are many prophetic symbols that are used. Then ceremonial symbolism. Nobody, I think, has any trouble with this. You see that the offerings, the sacrifices, the building of the tabernacle, all those things, uh, obviously, uh, there's explicit symbolism all over the place in, uh, in those uh, uh, arrangements that God made. Uh, and uh, through that symbolism, uh, we are taught much. And then there's uh, official symbolism. And by official symbolism, I mean the symbolism of office. Uh, David, as the king of Israel, is the author of many of the Psalms. And you see, David is important, uh, not just as an individual person, but he's important because of his office, because he's the king of Israel. And when you read about the king in the Psalms, you're reading about uh, one who is God's anointed, and he's set apart by that anointing. And uh, you find that the, the priests are also anointed, and there's even an instance of a prophet being anointed. So one is set aside to a calling, to a position, to an official status among the people of God. And uh, those positions all have a certain representative aspect. The king stands for his people. The priest represents the people. And the prophet is addressed sometimes as though he were Israel. (laughs) So uh, those who are given positions of, uh, of office in Israel... Uh, are uh, dealt with not just as individuals but as those who have a calling officially and there's symbolism in in that calling so you get these different kinds of uh, of symbolism and uh, now I'll come to that diagram in a minute but just uh, the final point here that covenant history reveals Christ in his salvation directly that is in the epiphanies, in the appearances of Jesus Christ. The uh, uh, theophanic angel, uh, the angel of the Lord, uh, through whom God himself is made manifest. The uh, captain uh, who challenges Joshua outside the walls of Jericho. Uh, as the captain of the Lord's host have I come, he says. Uh, these appearances are appearances that anticipate the incarnation in that they do reveal to us the second person of the Trinity. And then covenant history reveals Christ and his salvation because it is written by the Spirit of Christ uh, who actualizes redemption and who has prophesied it. Uh, I just looked at that first Peter passage uh, uh, with you a moment ago. Now, There's much to be said, of course, about the place of symbolism in God's revelation. Analogy, obviously, is an essential part of the way in which uh, God has formed us as uh, creatures in his image. You see, we are made in the image of God. So even to tell us who we are, we need symbolic language, don't we? Uh, we are we bear we are like God. The image means we're not identical to God, but it does mean there is likeness, and there is the basic principle of symbolism. 
in symbolism, there's always an element of, of identity, but also an element of difference. It's never identity alone. If you get direct identity, you don't have symbol anymore. Uh, when uh, uh, Roman Catholic doctrine teaches that the uh, uh, bread and the wine are uh, transformed into the actual body and blood of Christ, that they are substantially the body and blood of Christ, uh, well then, it's not a symbol anymore. Uh, it becomes the actual body. Uh, so the symbolic then is removed. Uh, so you must have an element of difference for, in order to have uh, symbolism. Uh, whereas the Reformed doctrine of the Lord's Supper uh, would teach that there is an element of symbolism. Of course, it's a complicated doctrine. I don't want to get into that. I'm not saying you have to be a Zwinglian to see a symbolic element, but uh, it is not simple identity. It, it involves symbolism. So there's analogy in God's creation, and there's analogy in revelation, and that analogy always involves an aspect of identity and an aspect of difference. <coughs> Uh, God calls himself our father. Uh, he calls Israel his son. And so again, there's an analogy, but obviously also difference. Uh, God's fatherhood is not like uh, human fatherhood, uh, and there, there is uh, simply a symbol that is used. Of course, uh, language is a system of symbols, and you have the difference uh, always uh, between meaning and significance, uh, immediate meaning and then, uh, by analogy, significance. The, uh, well, the word significance, significance. <laughs> that is, there's a sign built into it. And uh, <clears throat> in language, of course, uh, we, we deal with metaphors and, uh, and models. Uh, uh, language is built out of the extension of uh, metaphors and uh, created in a way from uh, faded metaphors. Now, uh, the, the symbol of salvation is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And in Christ, you have the fullness of reality. He is the full revelation of the Father. Ephesians 1, 15 to 23 Colossians 1.15, you get the finality of the word of revelation in Jesus Christ. Uh, that God who uh, appeared to the fathers through the prophets, spoke to the fathers through the prophets in so many different ways, has at the end of these days spoken in his Son. So uh, God speaks uh, in and through Jesus Christ. And the fullness of God's work is accomplished in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter uh, 1, to 1 verse 20. So you have the fulfillment of the symbolical in Jesus Christ. And uh, the, <coughs> the, the, um, the place of uh, symbolism is therefore extremely important in understanding biblical teaching. Now, uh, Vern Poitras is a, a real uh, cutting-edge person in the whole area of uh, discourse analysis. And uh, those of you who have studied with uh, Dr. Poitras here uh, know how he has brought out uh, the importance of analogy uh, in understanding the full structure of meaning. Uh, you know how he talks about 
what the meaning is, the, the kind of uh, uh, um, ontic, the, 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 uh, the, what, what, what it uh, directly says. And then he, he also uh, goes on uh, to talk about the more dynamic, uh, the process of communication. And then finally, he talks about the relational. Uh, that's a very beautiful uh, structure, you see, uh, because uh, as some of you have studied with him know, uh, he applies that all the way along the line from uh, uh, understanding word usage or even phonetics <laughs> uh, all the way to building it up to uh, understanding discourses or indeed whole books of the Bible. Uh, but the, what is uh, particularly remarkable in, in the way he structures it is the way he brings in analogy as part of uh, the, the, the understanding of a passage, you see. That, that you don't just take uh, meaning in isolation, you take meaning in relation. And that means also you take account of analogies. Uh, and um, what he says is, uh, <laughs> it seems to me to be transparently true, uh, but... Uh, <laughs> Uh, so many people seem to have so much trouble with it, you know. Uh, uh, what, what he's saying is, in all understanding that we have, we wouldn't even understand language without using analogy all the time. And so, as we, as we analogize, uh, even in understanding language, uh, we're always uh, uh, comparing things with other things that are like it, aren't we? And that's how we do science or anything else. That's how you exegete a passage. One of the first questions you've got to ask is, uh, what other passage is most like the one I'm looking at? And then, how does this differ from what it's most like? And as soon as you see how it differs from what it's most like, uh, you get a bead on what it is. That's why when uh, uh, Poitras is talking about that first thing of establishing meaning, uh, he always uh, deals with contrast, doesn't he? Uh, you, you know what it is by what it's not. And of course, where the contrast helps you most is when you're uh, contrasting it with what it's closest to. Uh, you see, it's this, but... No, not just it's this and not this, but it's this and not this. And then we're beginning to get a, a real bead on it, right? Uh, so, uh, well, end of an hour, you've got to have a little break. I'll say a little bit more about the, this, and then I want to work with you for a few minutes on that diagram uh, to see how it works to find Christ in all scriptures. Let's take a break. Now. Uh, let, let's see, is this the break? This is a break for a half an hour, right? Yes. Okay. Uh, I was talking about the place of symbolism in uh, uh, God's revelation, the analogy in creation and revelation uh, that uh, structures uh, all our thinking, uh, the place of uh, symbol in language. Uh, the, uh, you know, there are various levels of symbolism, too, in the way in which uh, God's revelation is given. Uh, we uh, think of uh, a metaphor on the very uh, simplest level, and uh, it's often supposed that a metaphor is simply in a word, that if you say, uh, that man is a pig, uh, the uh, metaphor is uh, the word pig, and to remove the metaphor, all you have to do 
is uh, exchange, the uh, metaphorical word, for a more literal word. Uh, you might say, for example, that man is a glutton. Uh, so uh, why bother with metaphorical speech? Uh, why give people puzzles uh, when you could give them uh, direct information? Well, of course, one obvious reason is people enjoy puzzles, and uh, <laughs> it's a way of getting some attention. Uh, another way of uh, thinking about it is that uh, uh, the... Uh, well, let, let me back away for a moment. Uh, but actually, the metaphor is not simply uh, in the word. Uh, Paul Ricoeur has uh, done a lot developing this, that uh, the metaphor uh, isn't strictly in the word, uh, nor uh, even in the sentence uh, as such, necessarily. Uh, but the, the metaphor uh, comes about as you bring together uh, two universes of discourse. And uh, it's the interlacing of those universes of discourse that create the dynamic that the metaphor uh, brings to mind. So there's always a certain tension in the metaphor, and with the tension also a certain amount of suggestiveness. Uh, so that uh, when you say, <coughs> the man is a pig, uh, what you're doing is uh, bringing together uh, two universes of discourse that are not actually compatible. Uh, uh, he is not a pig. Uh, he's not the, that particular animal, obviously. Uh, so it does raise the question as to uh, where these uh, contrary and intention universes of discourse uh, interlace. And of course, uh, a simple way of saying that is uh, when you say in a metaphorical way he's a pig, uh, you are suggesting more than what you say if you say he's a glutton. Because you've uh, suggested a whole universe of discourse there that uh, brings a lot of uh, uh, connotated meaning uh, into the expression. Now, uh, some metaphors in the Bible are, are very elaborate. Uh, and others are very simple. Uh, the body of Christ metaphor that the Apostle Paul develops is uh, quite an elaborate metaphor as he develops it, isn't it? He talks about the members of the body and the relationship of the members, and uh, uh, he, he takes uh, a basic idea and develops it into uh, what we might think of as a kind of master metaphor, uh, a metaphor that... Uh, suggests even more than it uh, directly describes by bringing together the, uh, the whole idea of an organism, the body, human body as an organism, uh, related to the church and the organic aspects of the life of the church. Uh, now, uh, th that is uh, a kind of master metaphor. And of course, that raises the question of models. Uh, is, it, uh, is it a model from which we could extrapolate further meaning? And uh, uh, you, you're aware that that has been discussed a lot in terms of the history of science, you know, uh, whether uh, scientific progress has come about uh, through shifts in uh, uh, the basic uh, metaphor, or through shifts in the basic model 
of the way in which uh, science, a uh, certain aspect of science is conceived of. Uh, the idea that science does not make progress simply by incremental steps, but uh, often by uh, shifting of a better metaphor, a better model, uh, so that uh, uh, from the Copernican, uh, classic illustration, from the Copernican uh, uh, concept of uh, uh, the movement of the planets uh, uh, to Galileo and the, the shift uh, was a shift of model and all sorts of, uh, uh, wait a minute, did I say that wrong? Um, no, it's, it's the, it's the it's Ptolemaic, that's right, I did say it wrong, I'm glad uh, I, I stopped to correct that. Uh, from the Ptolemaic to the Copernican is what I'm trying to say. Uh, a shift uh, from the Ptolemaic, and the, the Ptolemaic, of course, uh, had generated a great deal of scientific activity. There were all sorts of calculations developed to try to see how you could account for the observed phenomena in terms of uh, uh, an Earth-centered uh, cosmology. Uh, but then when the, when the model was shifted, uh, then uh, there was a new burst of scientific understanding because now uh, these uh, fruitlessly complex uh, 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 calculations uh, were, no lo were no longer necessary. Uh, I only mention that uh, kind of uh, discussion uh, because there are times when you need to think about that in relation to scripture and scriptural revelation. Um, <clears throat> for example, uh, the Roman Catholic Church uh, had, uh, before Vatican II, uh, a very firmly established master metaphor for the church, and that was the body of Christ, but the body of Christ is sacramentally understood. So it was uh, a body of Christ sacramentalism that was the basic model, and that was used as a model, not just a master metaphor, but a model. That is to say, further things were deduced from it, from the fact that the church was a sacramental body of Christ. Uh, but... Uh, uh, with Vatican II, uh, that was challenged, and uh, challenged by the concept of the church as the people of God. And so uh, that, that raised uh, some tension, you see. Uh, can the church be, and, and even the question, is the people of God any longer a, a, a model, or is it just a literal statement that the church is the people of God? Well, it depends how you think about it, in a sense, but... Uh, uh, people of God in the sense of Israel, uh, the church is the fulfillment of that as a model, but it's not the same thing, so it does their function uh, in, in a way metaphorically. It functions as a, uh, not a literal statement, the church is the people of God, but a model statement. Uh, the church is like the people of God, uh, like a people in being the people of God. So uh, that's... Um, uh, I mention that because it's important to see that um, we, we do need to take seriously uh, the metaphors of Scripture, uh, realize that some of them are very extensive, like the, the body figure, but then raise the question, uh, is any metaphor or any model uh, completely comprehensive? And see... Uh, uh, a fellow named Herwe Rykoff, R-I-K-H-O-F, um, wrote a whole book about that shift from uh, the body of Christ to the people of God, uh, models of the church uh, in Vatican II. And uh, 
uh, his, his uh, argument and the conclusion of the book was that no one model says everything <laughs> and that you need a multiplicity of models uh, to have a, a clear statement of ecclesiology, uh, which, of course, is what the Westminster Confession of Faith did long ago when it defined the church. Uh, so if you want to check the Westminster Confession definition, you see it talks about the church as visible and as invisible, but in connection with each uh, specification, it uh, lines up a number of scriptural figures. So it selects figures that it thinks are com more compatible with thinking of the church as uh, the, uh, uh, well, the um, thinking of the church as invisible, and then it picks out the, the figures that it thinks more compatible with thinking of the church as invisible. And, and that's a wise way to go, you see. It, it gives a theological definition, which was uh, Rykoff's point. You do need to develop a theological definition and not just deal with models. But yet, you see how the models uh, fit in to aspects of your definition. Well, anyway, um, uh, it's also true that you get um, some figures, some uh, metaphors uh, are what C.S. Lewis uh, speaks of as uh, a teaching metaphor. Uh, he says uh, there are metaphors that are used by a teacher in order to give some understanding to a student and the teacher may know more than the metaphor uh, encapsulates uh, but nevertheless, uh, he uses it for instructional purposes. The student may know no more about uh, uh, the thing being discussed than the metaphor expresses. That's all he knows about it. Uh, but uh, the metaphor becomes a teaching metaphor because it, it advances his understanding by that degree. And he use, uh, Lewis uses the example of a fourth dimension and then... Uh, describes how a certain uh, metaphor of the fourth dimension uh, might help a student to understand it who wouldn't know any more about it, whereas a teacher might know much more about it mathematically, uh, but would use uh, some sort of visual uh, metaphor to describe it. Uh, so uh, all that uh, fits into what we're talking about, because what I'm thinking about is the way in which uh, symbolic language is used in God's revelation. <clears throat> now, uh, let's uh, pursue that for a moment, uh, looking at that diagram that you have in your uh, outline. And I'll, I'll just throw it up on the screen. <clears throat> now, uh, let me just uh, indicate how that develops. See, here you have a certain event, uh, we'll, we'll say the Passover, okay? And then that uh, event uh, symbolizes a certain truth. So you have a line of symbolism there. Now, uh, the, the Passover obviously has symbolic meaning. Uh, the uh, firstborn of every uh, Egyptian family dies. The firstborn of every Israelite family deserves death. But instead of the Israelite son dying, uh, the uh, lamb dies. And the blood of the lamb is put on the doorpost. So obviously it's a ceremonial 
it's an element of ceremonial symbolism. Uh, so uh, that'll do for an illustration since there's no question that it's symbolic. And then uh, that symbolism then uh, reveals a certain truth. And whatever is taught in the uh, Passover, it certainly includes the idea of substitution. The lamb dies in the place of the sun. So there's that element, we'll say. So there's at least uh, that much of truth that's made evident. Now, uh, there goes through history uh, the line of God's redemptive purpose. So you have uh, the history of redemption, and the history of redemption is paralleled by the history of revelation. Because as God does his redeeming work, he also gives revelation explaining what he's doing. Now, uh, the basic argument here is this, that truth revealed at one time in God's revelation uh, never gets lost in the shuffle. Uh, God carries that truth through the history of revelation. And the fullness of all truth, of all the truth of God's revelation, uh, truth not to the first power, but truth to the nth power, uh, that's truth in Jesus Christ. So uh, here we have, uh, in some aspect of the work of Christ, gathered up all the truth that God reveals in one way or other. It relates to Jesus Christ and comes to a focus in him. Now, <clears throat> the argument is simply this, that if there's a line of symbolism here, then it's inevitable that there be a line of typology here. So if you've got a symbol here, you've got a, then you've got a type. If you draw these two legs of the triangle, you can always draw the hypotenuse. Oh, all right. Uh, all right, then, then I'm saying that that's how I'm defining a type. Well, uh, you see, the, no, there's a, there's a, there's a, there are conditions that have to be met, you see. If it's not a symbol in the first place, it can't be a type in the second place. Yeah, right, right. The way Gerhardus Voss uh, says it in a fine literary style is that the, uh, the door of topology is at the further end of the house of symbolism. <laughs> Much more graceful way of saying it. But uh, this is a little more geometrical than Voss, though. I, uh, yes. Yeah, sure. Um, uh, look what I just said. Uh, here's the, uh, the uh, Passover. And the Passover symbolizes uh, substitutionary sacrifice. And that principle of substitutionary sacrifice is carried through the history of redemption till it comes to the final substitutionary sacrifice, which is Jesus Christ. Ergo, the Passover is a type of Christ. Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us, Paul says. Uh, did you hear what he said, everybody? Uh, say it again louder. Oh. <laughs> well, not necessarily. Just say it louder. It'd be all right. No, uh, I'm trying to argue against that, you see. Uh, that's why I get this business of the first power and the nth power. So, yes, in a sense, that's more. The fulfillment in Christ goes beyond what the type, uh, what the symbol initially indicates. But the truth that's revealed here 
is not other than the truth as it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, the fact of the forward reference, the fact that it does go to a, a higher power, as it were, that there's more to it, that, it, that uh, Christ uh, is more than a Passover lamb, that, he's, that the symbolism re- refers to more. Uh, let, let me finish with this gentleman. No, go ahead. Well, yes, there, there's more to it. There are other things that are drawn into it, and there's more symbolism in the Passover, for that matter, than just substitutionary atonement. There's the uh, threat against the firstborn, and the threat against the firstborn symbolizes that all men are under judgment, uh, that it's not just the Egyptians, but the Israelites, and uh, the firstborn is a symbol of the, the uh, uh, firstborn serves as a representative for the whole line, you know, therefore for all people. So there, there's a lot <coughs> in the symbolism of the event itself, but <coughs> you surely see the difference uh, between the sense in which symbolism reveals the truth to the degree that that truth has been made evident. See, there, there are degrees of revelation. Things get clearer as you get to Christ. And it's important to see there's a history here. Oh, okay. Uh, see, I'll put his question into other terms. Uh, he's, he's saying, I, I think he said that quite clearly, what could you tell an Israelite at the time of the Passover that God was ultimately going to do? Now, you know, you're just asking what, the, what, how this degree of difference or richer or whatever, how that has sense. Uh, obviously, uh, the problem with telling him at that time is that he's not prepared to understand it at that time. If he were, God would have told him. So uh, you're going to have trouble telling him. I mean, he, you can tell him, but he won't understand. Uh, but uh, just to rephrase the question, uh, what's wrong with preaching synagogue sermons? What's wrong with preaching uh, on the Passover uh, just as you could do in a Jewish uh, synagogue? A lot of people do it. A lot of people in Christian churches preach synagogue sermons in the sense that they uh, preach only the truth to the degree it's revealed immediately in that passage and do not connect it with the uh, further development of that truth as it is carried through to Jesus Christ. Okay, uh, I've got, yes. Uh, carried forward through the history of redemption. That's very clear and very helpful. That's the whole point of the diagram uh, to show the legitimacy of the line of topology. Or another way to say it, it's the way of defining topology. That's right. That's how you know that it's right. That's how you develop it. Uh, But once developed it, once you're in a situation to justify it, uh, then uh, uh, sometimes you can use more of a shortcut in the actual preaching. Yes. Well, no, it's, uh, it's revealed. Uh, your faith embraces it, but it's revealed. Uh, it's objectively revealed in God's revelation. Uh, and uh, it can be traced out, you see. It's, uh, it's traceable. Uh, you do have to establish that it, in some sense it has a symbolic reference, see? And that's why it's so important to... Uh, in my own thinking, uh, uh, to, uh, uh, to, 
I, I just rejoiced to see Poitras's discourse analysis business because it says something that I think is very important. Namely, that part of uh, the understanding, uh, the, the part of the hermeneutics in interpreting a passage is taking account of its uh, analogical relationships. See, where it does tie in with other things. All right, yes. Uh, sure. Uh, now, that's not to say that you can't get certain analogies uh, in terms of certain events, but it's, uh, it's arguing that uh, you don't leave Christ out of it uh, to get the, the total relationship right. <clears throat> yes. Um, well, yes, uh, yes, that's a uh, good way to say it, because uh, in Christ, uh, the symbols have become reality. That's, uh, that's a fair statement, yes. That's tough. I, 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 that, keep working on it, will you? Ah, yes, yes. I know, I know. Cheers. Oh, they, they, let those men keep working on you, brother. That, that, no, 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 seriously, seriously. Okay, come on, come on. How far, is there a uh, That's my question. Can we go too far? Uh, sure, sure you can go too far. In the sense that, uh, <clears throat> oh, it's hard to get into one thing without getting into other things, you know. Uh, but uh, uh, take, uh, take the... Um, See, you do have to establish some symbolic reference of some kind uh, before you're, you can legitimately go forward that way. Uh, uh, now, a, a, a good illustration, this is, it'll help a little bit. Um, Rahab's red cord that was put out uh, on the walls of Jericho. Um, is that, I've heard that messages, you know, where that was said to be symbolic of the blood of Christ. And I don't think it is symbolic of the blood of Christ. Why not? Because there's no evidence in the passage that the redness of the cord had a specific symbolic meaning. See? Uh, now, suppose uh, she had been told to dip the cord in blood and hang it out the window. Uh, well, that would have had a different meaning, see. But uh, so far as we can tell, looking at the passage, and here you use all the tools you'd use for any exegesis whatever, see? Uh, you'd raise questions. Did they call, uh, did women in her trade in those days, was it spoken of as the red light district? Uh, I mean, uh, you, you've got to, uh, you've got to, uh, uh, presumably not, see, okay. Uh, but no, uh, you've got to look at the whole, whole setting of it. Uh, and why did she hang out a red cord? And uh, well, because spray paint. Uh, how else could she indicate where her house was? It, it had to be evident that she lived there. This is where Rahab lives. Uh, so the, the simplest explanation of the red cord is that it's there to mark her house. And that's it. And uh, uh, there's no evidence that it has a ceremonial symbolic significance, nor is there any evidence that simply the color red necessarily carries some kind of symbolic significance. Okay? So if, if there's no symbolism in the first place, there's no topology in the second place. 
Uh, now, just a second. Uh, see, I was, I was taught that you cannot find any symbol, you can't find any type in the New Testament that's not identified as a type in the New Testament. Uh, but uh, you, that's certainly safe. You know, it's like you got a book of math or something, and you uh, you can't solve any problem if it's not given in the back of the book. I, I mean, uh, you, you know the answer is right because it's in the back of the book. But you say you can't work any of the problems yourself. You can only look in the back of the book. It, it's kind of a, a confession of hermeneutical bankruptcy from one perspective. It's saying we uh, the New Testament writers can interpret these things, but we don't have a clue in how they did it. If we knew how they did it, we could do it, but we don't know how they did it, so we can't do it. So to play safe, we won't identify anything as a type that's not already identified as a type. And see, my argument is that they have taught us a lot by the way they identify types. And what they have taught us is to be sensitive to the symbolic aspects of revelation. And uh, where we do identify symbolism, there we ought to identify type. Uh, right at this point, uh, did anybody here work on the Genesis 22 um, uh, uh, passage I gave? Uh, Genesis 22, Sacrifice of Isaac. Anybody work on that? Okay, nobody worked on it. Uh, but uh, let's look at it then. That, that's, uh, I was going to save that for when we would uh, get there, but uh, let, let's look at it. Turn, turn to Genesis 22. That's going to help us, I think. <clears throat> Uh, that's particularly helpful since uh, uh, Dr. Krabendam uh, has insisted uh, that uh, this is not typical of Christ, that it's uh, the testing of Abraham's faith. And uh, is that right, that Genesis 22 is the testing of Abraham's faith? Absolutely. Look at the beginning. And it came to pass after these things that God did prove Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, Here am here am I. And he said, take now your son, your only son, whom you love, even Isaac, and get into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering in one of the mountains that I'll tell you of. Now, <clears throat> we know that it's a test of Abraham's faith because God says so. I mean, the Bible says so, that uh, God was testing Abraham. And then look at the end of it, uh, the uh, 15. The angel of the Lord called unto Abraham, a second time out of heaven and said, By myself have I sworn, saith the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, that in blessing I will bless you, multiplying I will multiply your seed as the stars of heaven, sand which is on the seashore, and so on. And uh, in, in uh, your seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. So... At the beginning of the narrative and at the end of the narrative, there's a reference to the testing of Abraham, to the fact that he, uh, in faith, uh, believed God and uh, was obedient. And because he was uh, faithful and obedient, God uh, uh, repeats and uh, emphasizes uh, the uh, great blessing that he will provide. So there's no doubt that there's a testing of Abraham's faith and that Abraham successfully sustained the test. He was ready, if need be, to sacrifice his own son, right? Okay, now, is there any element of symbolism, however, also in this passage? Yes, and how do you see that? Well, you see that in the name that Abraham gave to the place. Uh, <coughs> verse 14, 
And Abraham called the name of that place uh, Yahweh, well, Jehovah Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Now, uh, the Jireh, uh, it comes, of course, from the Hebrew verb to see, and uh, here it's uh, to see in the sense of uh, to, be, to see to it. And uh, that saying is repeated, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Uh, seen or seen to in the sense of provided. Now, uh, see, here you have really uh, a double identification of the event. Uh, you have the identification in terms of the testing of Abraham's faith but you also have an identification of the event in terms of witness to God's grace. Uh, see, it is God who has provided uh, the, uh, the sacrifice. Uh, the son doesn't have to be offered up. After all, uh, there's the ram caught in the thicket. Now, of course, there's symbolism in the offering up of the ram, uh, but that's not the issue. Uh, the issue is the substitution of the ram for the son. And, uh, you know, you compare like things with like. Are there other evidences where, uh, are there other places where the, there's a claim on the life of the firstborn? Sure, uh, uh, the Passover. Uh, any other claims on uh, uh, children? Sure, Ab- uh, Moses coming into uh, Egypt and uh, with uncircumcised sons. And there's a death threat against them if they're not circumcised. Uh, and there's always the, uh, well, out of the Passover, the ordinance that the, the firstborn had to be bought back from God by a payment of uh, uh, a sum of uh, money. So that you, that you have these uh, uh, shekels to buy back the, the firstborn from, uh, the, they belong to God. And of course, the whole setting, the firstborn of every animal belongs to God and has to be sacrificed. But uh, with men, it's not just the claim by right of creation. There's also the claim by right of uh, uh, sin and therefore the question of redemption. How will they be brought back? How will they be redeemed? Well, they're redeemed by money. They're redeemed by the substitution of uh, a a lamb. uh, They're redeemed by the substitution of the ram. They're redeemed by the substitution of the Levites. Uh, The the number of the Levites is counted up as to how many for the firstborn and all that. So, uh, you see, it's all over the place, this idea that uh, there is uh, a debt to God that is owed because we are all sinners and we all deserve uh, to pay the price of sin. And it's seen uh, pointedly in the firstborn. Uh, So, uh, Abraham is not called simply to murder his son. That's how Soren Kierkegaard understood it. He had a lot of trouble with his own father. And uh, he, he was, uh, uh, he deeply loved him, but he's always got this mysterious uh, father problem. Uh, uh, but anyway, uh, the, the, uh, Kierkegaard just saw it as uh, uh, God saying that the, the, what, what Kierkegaard calls the teleological suspension of the ethical. <laughs> uh, see, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the ethics, uh, ethics says you don't murder people. Uh, but the teleology says God has a purpose in it and therefore you've got to do it. Uh, so uh, anyway, uh, of course, what Kierkegaard isn't seeing is the biblical theology of it. That he's not told to murder him, he's told to offer him up as a sacrifice. And uh, in one sense, it's, uh, it's a, a sacrifice of consecration. It means willingness to give everything to God 
uh, take your son, your only son whom you love. Uh, but from another perspective, it's not just the sacrifice of consecration. It's also uh, a, a sacrifice uh, that involves expiation because there's blood, you know. Uh, that he's to be killed and the blood flows out. Uh, you see, so that raises the question, shall I give of the fruit of the, my body to pay for the sin of my soul? And, and in a sense, the answer is yes. The answer is yes, not only is the son forfeit, but that redemption has to come through the appointed seed. And Isaac is the seed of the promise. And so, in a sense, it's right that the seed of the promise uh, should pay the price, uh, that the price should then be paid. Uh, but, of course, the problem with that is uh, that Isaac is not perfect, and uh, the animal for sacrifice was always had to be perfect, and, and Isaac isn't perfect, and uh, uh, I, if he were killed, uh, would only be paying the price for his own sin, because he's not perfect, and uh, not even the sin of Abraham, his father, far less uh, uh, the, the atonement for sin generally. So you see, there, there's a whole structure here, and that it's it summed up in the statement, Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide, and there is a great testimony to what the event means. It means not only that Abraham is being tested in his faith, but it also means that God is revealing his grace because he provides. He provided Isaac, didn't he? Uh, but Isaac won't do. Uh, and we go to an animal, but uh, uh, what are we to conclude? That uh, uh, God's happy to take an animal instead of Isaac? That that's, of course not. <laughs> because why not? Because of the history of redemption. Uh, what does God really mean ultimately? And when we say the Lord will provide, what does it ultimately mean? Of course, it ultimately means that he provided the animal caught in the thicket, but what he's going to provide at last is what John the Baptist uh, declares, behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Uh, the Lord will provide is a main theme in the history of redemption. That the salvation is of the Lord. He must provide the, the, the salvation that, that uh, uh, he has planned. And that salvation is ultimately provided in Jesus Christ. So the Lord will provide Jehovah Jireh. Uh, what does that mean? Does that mean uh, what the little chorus says? Jehovah Jireh, you know, the Lord will take care of me. He'll provide everything I need. Uh, the Lord provides how great. Well, yes, the Lord does provide, but that's not what that passage says. The, the Lord will provide means he will send Christ. Not that he'll provide an animal caught in a thicket. That won't substitute for Isaac. The blood of bulls and goats doesn't take away sin. Uh, so who does take away sin? The one that the Lord provides. And uh, the book of Hebrews said that, uh, that uh, Abraham even had a clue on that. <laughs> because uh, uh, Abraham said, that uh, the book of Hebrews says that Abraham was ready to receive him by a resurrection, if need be. <laughs> by a resurrection, mind you. <laughs> and uh, why does the book of Hebrews say that? Uh, because he's uh, uh, used to rabbinical exegesis where you can make anything mean anything. No, no, that's not how he says it. <laughs> Uh, uh, the, 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 what, what does it, what, why does he say that? Well, you know from the account. 
uh, Abraham says to the servants when he leaves them, uh, you stay here with the animals and we will come back again. So he expects uh, <laughs> to bring Isaac back. And, and of course, uh, uh, Abraham had some unusual uh, ideas about Isaac, didn't he? He didn't get Isaac until it was impossible. So he knows Isaac's the seed of the promise. And he knows that somehow if God gave him Isaac by a miracle, uh, uh, God isn't going to rub out his own miracle. So somehow he doesn't know how. Uh, by a resurrection, if need be, says the author of Hebrews, uh, he's ready uh, to believe that God will provide. And, uh, and uh, that, of course, that's what he says. Uh, I, I didn't work that in earlier, but, you know, that the pathetic moment that touches anybody's heart, they're going up the mountain together. Uh, Isaac says, uh, uh, there's the fire and there's the knife, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And, Abraham says, God will provide the lamb for the sacrifice. And he's not just, uh, he's not just lying to uh, Isaac to uh, keep him with him until he gets to the top of the mountain when he's going to uh, throw a chokehold on him and uh, a quick lasso him and get him roped up. Uh, uh, you know, come on. I mean, he's older than I am. And uh, he can't go wrestling around with Isaac very well, can he? Well, uh, you, 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 you see the point, don't you? That, that he, he says, God's going to provide. It, it's too, God's done too much. He's not going to take it back now, I believe. And what he believes is the heart of grace. What he believes is the plan of God. What he believes is the word of God, that God's going to do it. See? And so, in Genesis 22... Uh, it's not that you have two approaches to interpreting it. Uh, one, a redemptive historical approach, and the other, an ethical approach or a faith-centered approach. You can't have faith without grace, can you? <laughs> and, and, and the appropriate reception of grace is always faith, right? Uh, so uh, Abraham didn't earn eternal salvation by what he did. He showed his faith. He showed that he was a believer, and that's how Paul interprets it. And uh, that's why Paul says, uh, as he does in Romans 8, uh, that uh, God spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Now, that language is a clear allusion to Genesis 22. Uh, Abraham did spare his son, didn't he? He went up the mountain, but he didn't have to knife him, so he spared his son. But God couldn't spare his own son because it was in his own son that Jehovah Jireh would be fulfilled. In his own son uh, that uh, uh, God uh, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Uh, and as uh, John Mary uh, long ago pointed out uh, that uh, he gave his own son refers to the... Uh, divine sonship because the giving included sending him into the world right the incarnation was part of the giving so it isn't that just that God gave the incarnate son uh, God gave the true son the divine son the eternal son he gave him and the eternal son offered himself up in his physical nature in, in his nature as a man uh, not just physical but his nature as a man uh, okay, uh, let's, um, 
You see, uh, this is not, uh, and this isn't just an odd passage that happens to mention grace alongside of faith. Uh, Grace and faith run together through the whole Bible. And where, where, where faith is evident, it's always faith in the gracious work of God. It's always faith in what God is doing. Um, uh, okay, uh, we were, well, have, have I, cla- I don't want to keep belaboring this if you see the point of it, but uh, I do want to try to answer questions because I think this is important. Uh, what I'm, uh, one of my personal objectives in, in trying to teach the course here is to help, I said it originally, it's to help you see that uh, the redemptive historical approach isn't some kind of patented way of uh, inventing sermons or it isn't for people who've got a, an aesthetic uh, streak in uh, their head or something. It, 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 what it has to do, it's, uh, it's, it's a fair interpretation of how the Bible's put together and why we're given it in this form. And so that's what leads to these other remarks, (laughs) because when you preach or teach uh, uh, the passage, uh, then you see uh, you're explaining the meaning. The meaning is in Christ, and you're explaining that meaning, and the line that explains meaning is not sign, this is the sign, but it's significance. And the significance is unpacking the meaning of the fulfillment in Christ uh, for the sake of uh, the hearers. So here would be the activity of preaching or teaching. Uh, You take the truth as it is in Christ and you present that that significance to people. Now the rest of the the diagram, uh, I think you... uh, is evident enough. Uh, the, this line is uh, a line that's uh, uh, illegitimate, I think. Uh, this is the line of moralism. Now, that's preaching the passage in its original context as though it did not link up with the progress of the history of redemption. That's preaching a synagogue sermon. Now see, it may be very accurate. You may uh, uh, well explain what it means in that setting. But if you leave out all reference to Christ, uh, then uh, you're not preaching uh, the, the, um, the meaning of the passage, really because the meaning of the passage in its total context is the meaning that it has in terms of its fulfillment in Christ. So that moralism won't do. Now, one could preach on uh, Genesis 22 moralistically, and I've heard it done. You just say, uh, are you willing to give up everything for God? Abraham was asked to give up everything, and he was willing. Are you willing? Are you willing now to surrender everything to God? If he takes away that which is nearest and dearest to you, would you be 
will you be able to say, your will be done? You just preach that and nothing more. Well, a synagogue uh, rabbi could preach that, couldn't he? No problem. Uh, but uh, what do you have to preach? Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will provide. What does that mean? He'll send Christ.